News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, sometimes we come across science and history stories that don't possibly seem like they could be true. It seem like they're from a crazy science fiction movie or something like that. And you know what? This next story does seem like that when I first heard about it. it has to do with a scientist from the Soviet Union, I guess, or was trying to create a human-ape hybrid. See, already it doesn't sound like it could be true, but that's why we're going to get our next guest to explain it. Johnny Thompson is back with us, philosopher and writer for Big Thing. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you find these crazy stories, and then I feel like we have to talk about them. So (laughs) what is this one all about? This doesn't seem like it could be true. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. It is crazy, isn't it? Because, um, well, we've had kind of animal hybrids around for kind of millennia, really. You know, we have like mules, which are this mix of horses and donkey and they're, you know, they're essential in agriculture and, and transportation and have been for a very long time. And at the turn of the 20th century, uh, people were getting excited about the idea of, a, of an ape-human hybrid. Uh, and so scientists were investigating how to do that. And, there, and in 1908, there was one study even funded by the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And, um, but the public found out about it and they, and they went ballistic. They, they hated the idea well, and there yeah. was a huge uproar. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was banned. The Paris Institute kind of like quickly, uh, the, sorry, the Pasteur Institute quickly pulled out of that. And um, it was left to the Russians after the uh, Russian Revolution to do the next best thing with a guy called Ilya Ivanov. Yeah. Uh, and so, so what was the yeah. purpose of this? So what did they think they were going to get out of it? Well, I mean, there is an urban legend that Stalin had planned for and wanted these kind of ape human super warriors. But it kind of seems that might be just a bit anti-Russian propaganda. And But this this, this man, Ilya Ivanov, who was a geneticist and he was uh, were focused on artificial insemination, he was definitely uh, interested in the idea of um, these human ape hybrids because he argued they would be stronger, they'd be more intelligent and they'd be more resistant to disease than either humans or animals would be. But so in, in, in the new kind of USSR in Russia, uh, funding was limited for scientific research. And so he had to brand it very carefully for it to get passed. He knew that Lenin and Trotsky and this new Politburo kind of like upper echelons were massively anti-religious. So he kind of built the whole project as being kind of a, a one up against the church, really. He kind of said, like, you know, if we could make these human ape hybrids, we could control our own evolution and we can kind of take one up for uh, atheistic humanism. And, and that really did appeal to uh, the Politburo. And so they gave him $10,000 and a, a very rare travel permit and said, yeah, get to it, if enough. Yeah. <laughs> So it didn't actually go anywhere, though, right? He didn't have very much success. He didn't have much success. So he went, he went across to French Guinea in West Africa, and he, his plan originally was to find some apes and, and pay local women to get on board with the, with the research. But he hadn't accounted for this, this huge social taboo in French Guinea where it, there were local legends of women being carried off by, by apes and raped and, and these kind of man-ape hybrid and stuff. And so no one... So he did no homework is what you're saying. So. He just like showed up and thought this would <laughs> be a no, good idea. Not, yeah. No background check, yeah, exactly. no nothing. Yeah, exactly. Classic early 20th century European yeah. mindset, really. And he kind of turned up. And, <laughs> um, but so then he switched his plans and, and him and his team went off into the, into the hills of French Guinea to try to find apes. But then he found also that they're really hard to find. You know, obviously <laughs> hiding in trees and they don't want to be caught. So um, after weeks and weeks, they eventually got 13 and they tried to use uh, the, the team's um, semen to uh, inseminate the female apes. Um, and he was very careful to say that the semen hadn't come from either him or his own son, 
but he did say that you know it was from kind of like a viable uh, men and kind of virulent men so yeah he, it, nothing worked Crazy. Um, after several months there, there were no viable pregnancies and of course he was desperate now because you know the russia who were who are famously kind of um, gulag friendly had given him you know ten thousand um, dollars and he had to kind of prove something so um he, he changes he changed his mind he wanted to kind of like do an idea where he, he was going to fake gynecological examinations of of women and he was going to inseminate people against against their okay. will this guy's now uh, he sounds is, like which, a lunatic <laughs> this sounds like he yeah. should have been in jail at this point yeah, he's a desperate Halloween lunatic, isn't he? And so, luckily, the French authorities got wind of it, and they said, and they said they deported him, and Ivanov kind of appealed to Russia and said, you know, I've been, I've been, this is a, a mis, a misjustice, and Russia actually agreed to France, which was rare back in the early 20th century, and and they, and they had him back home, and of course, by now he was in in the authorities' sights, really. You know, this was a, they, they had a reputation to uphold, and they didn't want this guy going across to around the world trying to impregnate locals with kind of um, ape semen. So, um, eventually, he was, um, he was caught. Um, he was rounded up and he was sent to a gulag um, a along with a lot of scientists in the kind of like a, a, a 1920s uh, kind of uh, purge, really, of scientists and anti-Soviet um, but, people. But those ideas, so. Johnny, right? Like maybe he was like 100 years perhaps too early to be working on them because those are things like that kind of mm -hmm. genetic mutation and, and working with embryos like that. That's the kind of work that you hear about now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, chances are the science is there now to achieve this. Uh, and so in, in 2019, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a story where a team of scientists from the US, China and Spain, they, they, they created the human monkey embryo. Um, that was viable for that 20 idea. days, which they yes. then then destroyed. Um, and so all research now actually into those kind of like chimeras um, have a kind of fail safe in them so that, that they will never reach full gestation. But um, yeah, I mean, the only thing holding back the research today is essentially this, the taboo really against the idea of a, of a human ape hybrid. And, and people have watched too much um, Planet of the Apes, really. It's a, it's right? a terrifying idea, isn't it? Or Jurassic Park. Just watch <laughs> these movies and you can see it's not a good idea. But this kind of, this is yeah, one of exactly. that, those areas of science, I feel like, just because we can do it doesn't mean that we should do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's what is holding back the science. And I think um, even in places like China, where the kind of research has, has, has fewer legislative kind of rules, I think um, they're very much against this idea, really. And, and, and of course, this is the world we're moving into with kind of CRISPR technology, gene editing and stuff like that. I think people are very careful and cautious about, about what we can do because, you know, while we can do these things, I think people are worried that they, you know, playing God is rarely a, a good idea. And I think if we're all watching horror movies today and tomorrow, I think we can all kind of take note of the uh, drastic errors would happen. Right. <laughs> kind of thing does so is it fair to say then, do you think, okay, so the idea of that obviously was anathema, it was terrible, people didn't want to do it, but there are some aspects of the technology of what he was talking about that perhaps do get used. Uh, yeah, I, th I think absolutely. Though. Well, I mean, I think... So the idea of, of human apes, uh, he, I mean, what he was doing actually was, you know, it was good, it was, it was good signs, if, if horrible. You know, it, 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 he did, he did, he did it properly and, and there were no viable pregnancies. So I think just in a way, doing artificial insemination doesn't seem to work. But nowadays we have, yeah, as I say, this CRISPR technology where we can uh, edit genes and we have, we're far much kind of like, um, kind of better biology really. And, and our genetic research is, is, is far advanced what if, if enough had in the early kind of 20th century. Um, I mean, there were some very weird ideas coming out of Soviet Russia, to be honest. Um, there's the idea that, you know, testosterone made everyone better. And so you'd have people injecting uh, kind of monkey uh, testes into, into men's scrotums stuff to try to make them more kind oh of aggressive and yeah and that actually that actually became quite a fad in the early 20th century like people in france and stuff in high society were doing these um kind of like these monkey 
injections. Um, and of course, Venture Science got, got wind of it and, and debunked the whole idea. But, you know, this was, uh, yeah, a big, big news. No kidding. And gives us something to talk about today. Johnny, thank you for your time Thanks. on that. <laughs> thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It's one of those signs of you kind of know you're getting older, old, perhaps, when time starts to feel like it's going by really fast. You know, as a kid, it seems slow. Everything was slow. The school year took forever. And next thing you know, things are getting faster and faster. and The years are flying by. And our Scott Schatz has been actually looking into this. Now, Scott, can we say that this is something that, yes, actually happens? Well, I mean, everybody that you talk to, I don't know anyone who ever says that this doesn't happen to them, right? Like the saying that's universal amongst parents with kids my children's age is, the days are long, but the years are short, right? It's like a Very grind true. through the day. But next thing you know, like uh, my by. my daughter is going to be seven this year. Seven. I can't believe it. Like wh- where has the last seven years gone? I feel this. Like my kids are much older now. They're in their mid twenties, but I feel like in my heart of hearts, my kids are still the age of your kids. Yes. Right. And I still feel like, oh, I have babies. My children are babies, but they're definitely not, not. babies. Yeah. So this is like a very real concept and I wanted to find out some more about it. So I spoke to Dr. Haley Nelson. She's a psychology professor and founder of the Academy of Cognitive and Behavioral Neuroscience to try to find out like is this is like is this a universal thing? How does it happen and why does it happen and also what can we do about it? The way that our nervous system is set up is really to make notice of new things in our environment, right? If we're outside, let's say way back in caveman times, right? We don't really care if the weather stays consistent, but all of a sudden a gust of air blows by and it's really cold. Well, now we have to seek shelter, right? So, and then because of when that happens, our brain is trying to get all of this information. It's gathering everything from all of our senses to be able to save us and to keep us safe. So our nervous system is set up to notice all of these novel things in our environment. But what happens is as we get older, I mean, how many of us have the same Groundhog Day type life where we wake up, we do the exact same thing every single day. And so things just become routine. But when we're a child, everything is new. It's the first time you take that vacation. It's the first time you have a pool party. It's the first time that you have your first kiss, right? And all of these things are new. So your nervous system is gathering all of this really detailed information to make those memories. And as a result, you're getting more and more activity in areas of your brain like your hippocampus, which are essential for creating and storing and consolidating these memories. So then when you think back on it, you have all of this detailed information, and that leads to the perspective that it took forever, that it lasted so long, when in reality, it might have been a 10-second kiss, for example, but then it feels like it was hours, and it was you know, so intense and emotional, but really it was just a, a, a blink of an eye, but it felt so much longer because you had so much of those details. So it's common. This happens all the time. So ways that we can, you know, kind of boost this as adults to savor the moment, as you said, is try to find some new novel things. Switch it up. Spice it up a little bit in your life, right? Take those vacations you've always wanted to. Do those things that you can with your spouse or your, your friend and go to those new restaurants. Experience new sights and smells and tastes and sounds so that you can start actually picking up 
all of those new senses in your surroundings so that you can create those new longer lasting memories. But you have to be mindful. You have to be present in the moment. You know, how many times do we just go to the same restaurants? And then even when we are there, we sit with our phones on the table and we're not even having conversations and we're not getting to know the server, the bartender that's helping us and, you know, meeting other people sitting at the table next to us. Be mindful of your surroundings and this mindfulness. And this is a practice that we can all develop and build. It strengthens the neural connections to be present so that you can actually absorb and pull in all of that information that's happening around us to make those memories that much stronger. And I really love that we're taking this concept of time and how it's speeding Mm -hmm. up and stuff and making it super relatable, like making it about me and like mindfulness, which I have started Mm -hmm. practicing in my own life and have found it insanely helpful for just being present and combating anxiety. But you talk about things like our phones and these things that take us away. I, I heard this quote, maybe you can relate to this when I was younger, is that after the age of 25, uh, very, like it's less than 10% of people ever try anything new, you know? And so when I was 30, I was, I, I was over 25. I was in my thirties when I heard that quote and I was like, is that me? Am I not bringing anything new into my life? So I went and got my motorcycle license and bought a motorcycle and all of a sudden discovered this whole new area of life, this thing that I'm passionate about that I never knew, you know, and it's challenging, but it really has like brought so much more fulfillment. And then of course, like you talk, I remember those those early days, like learning to ride and going on first motorcycle rides on a beautiful afternoon and stuff like they have become core memories, you know, exactly like mm-hmm. you're talking about. This is such brilliant, brilliant stuff. Uh, so we have to just keep doing that. That's the secret is to keep finding new experiences. Yeah, and if you can't go out and buy a new Lamborghini or a new, new motorcycle, if that's not in your budget, just do really little simple things like try writing with your non-dominant hand or brush your teeth with your left hand instead of your right hand. Do little things like that that is going to just kind of wake up and tell your nervous system, hey, something new is happening. This isn't the same old thing. And next thing you know, you're going to start noticing new things in your bathroom, for example, if you're brushing your teeth just by using a different hand. Or, you know, just try little things like that to incorporate it into your life. Take baby steps. I'm a big advocate of baby steps. If we, you know, wake up one day and say, let's go run a marathon, you can't do that. You have to train. You have to build your brain like it's a muscle. It is not a muscle, but you have to work it as if it's a muscle. And take these little baby steps to get to that point where you will have this mindfulness, you will be present, and then all of these new memories that you're creating are going to be so rich and meaningful. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic message to give your listeners and to everybody else just to, to be present in the moment and try new things. Don't be afraid to try. This is Mornings with Simi. So I was walking in downtown Vancouver yesterday and was startled to see someone uh, spray painting a boarded up window, like spray painting it just in the middle of the day with lots of people walking around. 
And I thought, so this is what it's come to, right? We talk about this on the show. We see the stories, but then when you see it in person, it feels like, wow, okay, this is really happening. I mean, shoplifting and vandalism, these are two of the biggest issues facing retailers today. I mean, never mind consumer confidence in getting people to buy their product. They have to deal with these other huge issues too. Now, the shoplifting issue is one that we are going to hear more about later this morning. When a coalition of retail groups are getting together to have a big press conference. They're demanding more provincial help in dealing with shoplifting and theft. On the vandalism side, though, some help is already arriving for businesses. There is a program called the Securing Small Business Rebate Program. It is beginning on November 22nd, so coming up in a few weeks' time here. But here's the thing. Small businesses in BC have to be on the ball with this one. They can apply for financial assistance help to help deal with vandalism repair costs and vandalism prevention measures. And that is money they can get from the provincial government to help them with that. Thing is, though, it's first come, first serve. So businesses have to know about the program and they have to get in there and they have to apply for that money. Joining us now to talk more about these issues, Fiona Fameluk is with us, President and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Simi. How big of an issue is this vandalism issue from small businesses that you've been hearing about? Well, the BC Chamber of Commerce represents 36,000 businesses from across the province, and the majority are small businesses. And they tell us that property crime and vandalism is on the rise, not just in the urban communities, but also rural communities. And the costs to repair the damage or to take preventative measures is driving up the cost of doing business, which is what we already know is, is very high in British Columbia. So it's a big deal. Okay, so what kind of support do you think is needed? Well, I think the rebate really addresses the the needs. Um, there are many, many businesses out there uh, that have spoken about the costs of repairing damage uh, incurred, and they also want to be proactive and put some preventative measures in place. And that's really uh, the the genesis of the of the rebate program is to provide relief for expenses incurred when there's been damage and also to put preventative measures to mitigate the risk of being vandalized in the first place. Right. Now, I understand that the BC Chamber of Commerce is actually going to be administering this program. We are. Yep. We're delighted to have been chosen to administer the program and we will be working very closely with our 100 Chambers of Commerce Boards of Trade across the province and our other association partners, including business improvement associations to make sure that businesses across BC are aware of the two rebates and understand how they can apply for it. And between now and November 22nd, which is when the application portal opens, I encourage everyone to go to our website, bcchamber.org, and to click on the webpage, Securing Small Business Rebate. And uh, you'll see the eligibility requirements as well as the application requirements. All right. Well, let's just run through a little bit of them right now then. So if somebody wants to, if a business wants the uh, financial assistance for vandalism repair costs, who qualifies for that? Well, there's, there's eligibility and then there's applications. So let me just run through the eligibility pieces first. The rebate is a small business rebate. So a business needs to have 50, 50 or less employees they need to have a storefront that can be accessed off the street and they need to be in good standing with the province, meaning if there are expenses owed to the government, 
they cannot be in arrears with those expenses. So if you tick the boxes in those three categories, then you can proceed to application. If you're looking to secure a reparative uh, rebate, then um, you need to identify what that repair is. For example, it could be a window repair, lock replacement, graffiti removal. You need to assemble the paperwork um, around that. So therefore, is there a police report? If so, include it. Uh, do you have expense? Do you have invoices that prove out the expense and when it was undertaken, etc.? Uh, provided you um, attach all the necessary documentation, uh, your rebate will be reviewed. Uh, that's a rebate that is valued up to $2,000 per calendar year, which means you can apply for repairs, a repair rebate in 2023 and 2024. So that's potentially a $4,000 relief right there. Yeah. Um, and that's, so that's, that's, for the, that's for repair, right? Like if you have to clean up broken glass, things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And what about the prevention side? The prevention uh, rebate is is uh, going to cover the costs of, of a business taking mitigating actions, such as installing shatterproof glass, exterior light enhancements, lock enhancements, and so on and so forth. Same thing. You need to uh, prove out that there has been vandalism in your area. You may not have, have experienced it, but you, you need to prove out that there has been uh, damage in your in your immediate business community, and um, that rebate is valued at up to one thousand dollars and can be uh, secured for one year only, so either twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four. Which means, uh, if you're a business that's um, uh, incurred expenses to repair, you you can collect potentially up to four thousand dollars, and if you want to take Mitigating factor, uh, mitigating actions, then you can apply for up to one thousand. So it's potentially a five thousand dollar lift for small businesses, which is is good news. Right. Okay. So and these are measures that I guess you're, all businesses have to think about these days, don't they? Because I don't, I feel like every business has probably been through this, either preventing the vandalism or dealing with the vandalism. Absolutely, it's top of mind. And as I mentioned, the the businesses we speak to on a regular basis are telling us that that vandalism and and property crime is on the rise. And they are on the hook for the expenses needed to repair. And that's on top of all the other expenses they have uh, as part of the cost of doing business here in this province. Okay, so then once again, Fiona, when is this going to be open for businesses? What do they need to know? The application portal is opening on Wednesday, November the 22nd, and it will run through until January 31, 2025. The rebates are retroactive to January 1st, 2023. So if you've incurred uh, uh, expenses right back to January 1, please consider applying. And in the meantime, please go to bcchamber.org and visit the Securing Small Business Rebate webpage. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about public golf courses. So we have six of them in the city of Vancouver, and actually recently they've started turning a profit. But then there also comes this discussion about whether or not some of the land for those golf courses would be better put to housing. So there is a report coming to the park board to talk about this actual issue. They're developing a 10-year plan uh, to discuss the city's six municipal golf courses. And so it's a hot debate about what to do with this land, right? We're talking more about it now with the help of Steve LaFleur, who's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What do you think about the city's golf courses? Do we get good value for this? These are public spaces. You know, I think the challenge is that uh, golf courses do add some value to the city. Obviously, a lot of people enjoy them. On the other hand, when you think about a city like Vancouver, uh, that's land-constrained, that has a housing shortage, is it the best use of land? Probably not. In what way? Why do you think that? Well, first of all, um, every large city needs a certain amount of green space for people to you know, be able to enjoy the city. Um, golf courses can only accommodate so many people at once. Um, you know, just the nature of golf being that people need to not get hit by golf balls and walking around. You know, you can't uh, squeeze as many people on an acre of golf courses. You can on an acre of a park. Um, and then, frankly, when you look at the housing situation in Vancouver, it's bad and getting worse, and it's been bad for a very long time. And the only way that's going to change is if um, the city finds some ways to add new housing. And that requires making some choices that politicians might not want to make. But what about adding a benefit to a community? One of the reasons why people love living in a city like Vancouver is that they think, oh, yeah, look, at I can play a sport like golf, and it is more affordable than it might be elsewhere because we have these city-owned parks. That's true for a certain number of people. That's, there's no doubt about that. On the other hand, does the average person play golf every day? Probably not. Um, does the average person need to live somewhere? Yes. Does the average person need to have some green space? Absolutely. Um, So golf might be nice, but uh, if you go down the list of things that are really, truly important to people's lives and, you know, you think about the housing crisis, um, does it rank near there? Is the importance of golfing as important as the importance of actually housing people? I'd argue no. Right. But the question is, how do you provide housing then, Steve? I mean, do you just develop a golf course? Because there's a lot of question about who makes the money off that. Well, you know, we always get caught up on who makes money. Uh, the reality is that if you're building houses for people, somebody's going to make money off of it. Um, if it could be the case that certain tracks are better than others for developing, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know the geography of each golf course well enough to say what is the best to develop. But what I can do is look at a map of Vancouver and see there's a lot of space there that could be developed. And uh, there certainly are ways to add housing uh, and to maintain some green space. Uh, it can be a win-win. Yes, some people will be disappointed. Um, on the other hand, golf is a luxury. Housing is not. Have you met people in Vancouver, Steve? Like, <laughs> some people I, will I be disappointed. Yeah. I know. I'm just saying, though, you talk about taking green space and turning it into housing. I, I feel like you're going to have a bit of an argument or a fight on your hands here. Well, that depends on how you define green space, though, right? I mean, golf courses provide a certain amount of green space for people who who are golfers. Uh, less than you get from a park. So if you were to take, say, a golf course and make half of the green space, half of it housing, you come out with more usable green space per person than a golf course because, quite frankly, you can only have so many people sit on a, on a golf course at the same time. 
Okay, so what kind of housing, though, are you recommending or advocating for here? Because housing is a big word. There's a lot that goes into that. You know, the way that I would put it is I'm open to any option. Um, Anything is better than nothing. Now, if it were me, it would be on the higher density side because the market totally justifies it. Um, And, you know, if, if you want to do some combination of affordable and market, you know, that's fine. Um, it's it's a math problem at this point. There just are not enough units. Need to find ways to do it. There are plenty of ways to add units to Vancouver, I might add, if the city chooses to. However, we're in a situation where the city has simply chosen not to for a very long time. Right. So are you would you advocate for something more like, well, sell the land and let it be developed? Or should the city keep the land and develop it themselves and have perhaps low-income housing? Um, you know, I think you can do you can do it in a number of ways. Um, I, I hate to make the perfect the enemy the good. Um, I would imagine that private sector developers would be more able to do it very quickly. I understand that, that might not be uh, the option on the table. The option might be you know affordable housing or golf. And if given the choice in a land constrained market that has a desperate shortage of housing, I go with housing. Right. Okay. I understand that, but. There's a difference between saying turn it over to a private developer or turn it into land that the city can develop but still own. Yeah, and my point is that either one is better than the status quo. Um, you know, you look at Vancouver, yes, it's true. There, the city is built out. The reality, you can fit more housing on the landmass. Vancouver is not a terribly dense city. There are a lot of ways you can add more housing. Unfortunately, they all meet with political resistance. Uh, so if we're going around and saying no to each option because it's not perfect, well, that's how we got here. Right. Okay. But if we say let's create more density for the land that we already have available to create more housing, and we, we don't have to answer the question about what to do with golf course land for a while then. Well, that would be the case, except for the reality is that you look at like East Vancouver, for instance, there's all kinds of places where you can add housing over the West End. Uh, we choose not to. So, you know, I'm open to choosing, making different choices, but those choices aren't being made. And the discussion isn't really even there. So if there's one option, even if it's the 10th best option, it's still better than nothing. Right. I guess my concern here with this, Steve, though, is this is a very valuable public space commodity. Once it's gone, we can't get it back. Yeah, um, I I see the value. I I understand that point. But we are in a situation where Vancouver is becoming a luxury town where very few people can afford. And it might be the case that, you know, a lot of people uh, who can afford it enjoy the golf in Vancouver. Is that the top priority for the city, for land use? You know, think about it this way. If those golf courses weren't golf courses right now, if that was just empty land, would people choose to put a golf course there or put housing there right now? I would think that given the circumstances, housing would be the clear option. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like people would say keep it as a park or keep it as as green space because it's so valuable. But Steve, it's an interesting debate. Thanks so much for your time on that. Thank you for having me.